Welcome to Worship in the Word with Generations Church of Granbury. You are invited to stay tuned for the next 59 minutes to enjoy some inspiring music from one of Hood County's wonderful congregations as well as an encouraging message from the Bible. The songs you are about to enjoy are from the Generations Church worship team led by Pastor Shake Anderson with the Gen Praise Band and on special occasions some great guest musicians.
You are listening to Worship and the Word with Generations Church of Granbury. Stay tuned for more inspiring music and a message from the Bible.
You are listening to Worship and the Word with Generations Church of Granbury.
5 says while we were yet sinners Christ died for us John 3 Jesus says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but might have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world the law had already done that we were, we were done for guilty worthy of death but that the world through him might be saved from that sense of death God used the law to reveal our need for him and sent Jesus to bring us him because he is him are you glad about it and receiving the benefits of that is so easy it's believing in your heart that he died for our sins and has risen from the dead and confessing with your mouth what you believe in your heart, calling on his name and saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and make me whole. I believe you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. That's where it starts, turning from your self-centered, sinful life to the Christ-centered life of he who gave himself for us so that we could freely give ourselves to him. Amen. To inspire us to serve him. Amen. Isn't it an honor to serve the Lord? Praise the Lord. Today, all the way from Culver City, California, is Crystal Sprague to share information and vision and inspiration concerning doing our part to help spread hope in the world in the area of human traffic. Who knows, there's still 
slavery going on in the world. A few years ago, a little church in California established a rescue house called My Refuge House in Cebu City, Philippines. And it is amazing what what congregation has done. And now they are networking and spreading out and making the opportunity for others to get involved. Crystal Sprague has served in the Philippines. Now she's helping this church in California to network in America, and she's come here to bring us a word today. Crystal Sprague, can we show our appreciation? Can everybody hear me okay? Oh, there I am. Oh. Well, good morning, y'all. It's been a long time since I've been in Texas, so I hope my y'all doesn't sound too rusty. Um, but it's great to see you, and I just have to say a huge thank you to Pastor and Mrs. Lata. I can't remember a time when I felt so welcome, and I just really appreciate it so much. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, uh, like Pastor said, my name is Crystal. Um, I lived here in the Dallas area, Dallas-Fort Worth area, for about five years um, when I went to college and also grad school. And so it's, it's fun to come back um, every, every I guess about every six months or so I make it back here. Some of my best friends in the world still live here, and I'm a huge fan, a huge fan of the kind of people that Texas produces. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's great to be here. Um, I also have to tell you that um, as I was worshiping with you this morning, I've I felt like I was in my home church again. I, I grew up in a little church in North Dakota, and um, I don't know what it was about this place, but just sitting sitting there and just worshiping with you, I, I just, I don't know, I just was taken back to my teenage years and back to um, just how I grew up and how I, how I learned to love the Lord, and, and I, I recognize some of the same enthusiasm in many of your faces that I, I learned from, from my home church in North Dakota. So I just want to say just thank you so much for the sort of kindredness that you, I have no idea how you produce, and most likely it's the Holy Spirit, <laughs> as it usually is. <laughs> but um, I just, I wanted to let you guys know that I, I just, I feel very at home here, so I... <laughs> Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to share a little bit with you. Like, like Pastor Lata said, I, um, I work in a home in the Philippines, and I've been there for about three years. Um, I Obviously, it didn't start out there. I, I moved around quite a bit, um, but I God gave a vision in my heart when I was still a teenager, and it led me to the Philippines. And so I want to I wanna share with you a little bit about... Um, the people that I came to love there and the, the sort of uh, massive problem that led me to, to look for those people and um, a little bit about what we're doing there and how we're addressing some of those huge issues that I'm sure most of you, um, if not all of you, um, know at least something about or have heard at least something about. So, um, okay, let me start. Um, we, I can't show you any of the faces of the girls that I work with because all of them have ongoing legal battles that they're fighting against their perpetrators. So this is one of our girls. Um, as her face has been very blurred out, as you can see, but I want to tell you her story, if that's okay. Um, we're calling her Becky. That's not her real name. Um, but when Becky... Becky grew up in a home that you can't really imagine or understand unless you see it physically. It's made entirely out of pieces of bamboo and cardboard. Um, she grew up there, and she was born to a mother who didn't have any education. Um, and so she spent her life, um, her, the way that she's made her income is by... Um, washing people's laundry for about 10 cents a shirt. or And right now, she's currently cleaning seashells for um, about 20 cents per 100 seashells. Um, so she spends her entire day um, 
doing this kind of motion with her knuckles, and, and she's, she's very worn. Um, but she, Becky grew up in a, a very impoverished family. Um, her father um, is actually, um, well, let's see, how do I put this? Her mother is her father's mistress, so it's not his first wife. Um, so her, her father comes there, um, you know, uh, probably once a month, a couple times a month, and sort of hangs out with the family and then goes back to his real family afterwards. But every time he comes, he drinks and abuses them very, very roughly. Um, there, Becky was never allowed to go to school because from her mom's businesses, she didn't have enough money to send them to school. Because even though public school is free, um, there are so many fees that are associated with it. Books and teachers charge extra fees because they don't make enough from the public system. And they, they make the kids bring brooms to school and other supplies because they can't afford it and the, the state doesn't pay for it. So Becky's parents never sent her to school. But she's really bright. So her father decided to teach her. And so starting when she was nine years old, he started teaching her how to read. Um, but every day after he uh, would teach her how to read, he would then molest and rape her. Um, Becky's mom, when she finally found out about it, Becky hid it for years, but when Becky's mom finally found out about it, she said, oh, well, maybe now you can earn us some money because you're, not, you're, you're dirty, basically. Um, so uh, a few, a little while later, um, the neighbor proposed that they go ahead and sell Becky. And the mother agreed, and they took Becky, and they took her to a, ho a hotel, not telling her where she was going or what she was going to be doing. At the time, she was 12 years old. Um, they took her to a hotel, and Becky, all along the way, said, where are we going? What are we going to do? She wanted to earn money from her family. She knew her mother didn't make any money and didn't have a means of providing for them, but, and she wanted to help, but she didn't know the job that she was going to do. Um, so they took her to the hotel, and they went upstairs, and Becky's neighbor finally told her, uh, you know, this is what you're going to do, and she ran out the door. She ran away scared, but she had no idea where she was. She'd been very isolated as a, as a, as a girl um, and as a, as a child, and she had no idea how to get home. So she, um, the, the, the pimp, her neighbor, came back out and grabbed her and dragged her back upstairs, and that was the end of it. Um, about six to eight months later, she was rescued by law enforcement and brought to our home. So, um, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. Very awesome. Very amazing um, that people are, that especially law enforcement is really stepping up and, and um, going in there and, and getting girls out. So, so Becky is one of the 12 girls that are currently in our home. And um, she's a, a big inspiration for me. Um, that's obviously not the end of the story, but I'm going to save the end until later. <laughs> I don't want to leave you, leave you hanging. So what is trafficking? Um, how many of you here have heard of trafficking? Yes. See, I knew most of you would. <laughs> They're calling it right now. They're calling it modern-day slavery. Um, trafficking is basically it's the act of either transporting or harboring, or selling, or holding someone. So any of those factors make someone a trafficked person. It can be one, it can be a number of those factors, but any of them combined or by themselves make someone a trafficking victim. Um, those, the persons can be trafficked through the use of force. Lots of times you hear about people being trafficked because they were drugged, um, because they were you know, beaten. Um, but then a lot of times, honestly, it's little girls who are led astray by boys who tell them that they love them and will give them the world. And then 
Um, it's, it's amazing the ability that um, traffickers have to pick out the vulnerable and to look for those who have been previously abused. Most of the girls in our home, I would say probably 90%, were either sexually or physically abused in their home of origin. And um, it, it's just incredible. It's incredible the ability that traffickers have to just pick them out of a crowd and go after them and, and you know, learn to sort of manipulate them and, and um, convince them that, you know, this is... This is something that would be profitable for their family or would, you know. And it's, and they, but a lot of times also they go to the parents and they say, um, hey, we'll give you this amount of money. You could obviously need it. You obviously could use it. And, uh, and go around the, around the child completely. And like I mentioned with Becky, don't even tell, don't even tell the girl what's going to happen to her. So those are, so those are the key aspects that um, lead someone to be a victim of trafficking. I don't know if you've heard any of these numbers before, but they're estimating right now that in the world there are currently 27 million persons that are in a situation of trafficking, that are being held against their will. Um, do you guys know how many people live in Texas? 25 million. <laughs> I looked it up today. The, the state census of 2011 said like 25 and a half million people live in Texas. So there are more people than the entire state of Texas currently being held against their will. Um, and primar- not primarily, but in situations of forced labor or um, uh, sexual bondage. Um, 80% of those are girls or women. And 50% of that total number are under the age of 18, or minors. Um, it exists in every country in the world. Um, I don't know. There's a, there's a report that comes out that started coming out every year called the Trafficking Persons Report. And it, it goes through and it lists the different, every single country in the world and the ways in which that country is sort of complying with standards to eradicate itself of trafficking and, and ways in which they can improve. And literally in every country in the world, um, there is... There's a situation. There's a, an instance of, of this kind of thing happening. Um, the average age for girls um, who find themselves in situations of commercial sexual exploitation, as it's technically called, or trafficking, is 12. So Becky is, is average. <laughs> She's typical um, when it comes to this situation. 12 years old is the age that they um, typically find themselves there. And... It's a, huge, it's a huge market because it's profitable. <laughs> Traffickers are making so much money. Um, globally right now, they're estimating that approximately $12 billion a year is being made just on the children who are being sold um, and who are being held in, in situations of forced captivity. So, um, big problem, right? Huge problem. Um, and what do we do? Like, what, what could possibly be done? Um, well, um, I want to share with you guys the scripture that started the organization that I work for. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great scripture and it's a great story. And I want to share it with you guys because the church that started it is, I think, just about the size of this church. And um, it's, um, yeah. So the, the scripture is Psalm 10, uh, starting in verse 12, and I'm, I'm just going to read it to you guys if that's okay. Um, it says, Arise, Lord, lift up your head, O God, lift up your hand, O God, do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, you won't call me to account? 
But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. So there was a woman in a small church in Southern California that read a book called Terrify No More. And I don't know if any of you have heard it. It was written by the the founder of an organization called International Justice Mission. But it it, it gave a narrative account of how they'd gone into Cambodia and they'd rescued, um, I think, almost 90 young girls and then had nowhere to put them. It had nothing to do with, there were no homes, there were, there were no facilities, there were no programs available for these young girls who had just had this tremendous trauma to ever go to. So this woman in this small church in California, uh, she read this and she said, we have to do something. We cannot sit by and not do something. This is, this is huge and wrong and terrible in every way. And scripture obviously says that God is concerned about this. So what can we do? Um, So she went to her church, like I said, her small church of 100 people. And that church, um, since conception, about eh, 10 years ago, I think, uh, had been meeting in various public places and raising money to build a building. And so when she took this issue, this dilemma, to her church, um, instead of building a building, they used their building fund to start my refuge house. And um, they built a building in the Philippines instead. And they started an organization for girls. So that organization started in um, in 2008. um, And we opened up our doors in 2009 to start taking in girls. And we we went to Cebu, Philippines. Um, The Philippines is probably not um, the worst country in the world for trafficking, but it's pretty high on the list. Um, I think it's estimated that there are around... Oh, hold on, I forgot to write down my numbers, but it's somewhere between 500 and 600,000 women and, and children and boys and girls who are sold per year, and 80 to 100,000 of those are women, or sorry, 80 to 100,000 of those are children, so below the age of 18. Um, so when this small church found out about this issue, um, they contacted International Justice Mission and they said, where can we support you? Where can we come and build a home that you can rescue girls and then bring them to? And they said, come to Cebu City, Philippines. So that's where they went. They went to Cebu, they opened up a home there and they began taking in girls of January 2009. Um, And um, yeah, let's see. This is, I wanted to show you guys this picture because this is the church. They're just little bitty. They're, um, you know, I, maybe even smaller than your church. Is, um, but that's them. This was like last, last Easter, 2012. Um, and they're meeting. This is the golf course. That's where they were renting a facility for a while <laughs> to meet out of. Um, so since January of 2009, um, we've taken in almost 40 girls and women. Um, most of them, most of our girls are between the ages of 13 and 18. Um, that's primarily the ages that, that girls are rescued. Um, and um, as I was, I was meditating on, on the song that was being sung this morning um, about um, God consuming me from the inside out, and I was thinking, 
of just, oh, I, I was thinking of how I'd prayed a prayer very similar to that when I sat in my church in North Dakota that this one reminds me so much of. And um, what a terrible prayer that is. <laughs> it's an amazing prayer, but it's terrible because when you pray it, God answers that. <laughs> he does. He doesn't look away. He says, yeah okay, <laughs> give me what you got and I'll, I'll make it what I can. And, um, it's a, it's a hard path to take. And I, I mean, I just, I just want to be honest with you guys. When I set out to follow completely after God, it was tough. <laughs> Still is tough, isn't it? Um, God gives us the strength that we need, that we need, but he doesn't give us a whole lot more strength than we need. He just brings us through. And I, I mean, he has to teach us how to depend on him, doesn't he? Um, but I just, I, I could, I could go through and I could tell you guys countless stories of, of the trials that I personally face and the trials that my refuge house has faced and, and the ways that God has just miraculously again and again opened doors and, and brought us through and, some of my favorites are the stories. We've had two girls in the past year who, um, when they came to our house, they told me, you know, the night before I was rescued, I, I prayed. I prayed that God would rescue me. And the very next day he did and then brought him to our house. And, um, yeah, I mean, those are, the, those are the great ones, right? And then there are the other, the really hard ones about, you know, just people that you think are going to help you and end up, not helping you at all <laughs> and the people that um you come across who just really make you you know question and wonder god are you sure we're in the right place are you sure we're doing the right thing but then you get those girls who say they prayed to be rescued and and we're just so thankful to be there and able to take them in um yeah god is he's miraculously faithful he is um but it's a Oh, it's a hard road. <laughs> I just want to say that for those of you who are praying that God will God will change you from the inside out, um, please do. Please pray that prayer. But please understand how hard it's going to be when you do, because um, yeah, God gives you the strength and He He holds you through. Um, but it's it's a very it can be a very very hard road. Um, my this so this is this is a fun story too. My refuge house opened in two thousand nine. And we built a rental facility, or they opened with a rental facility, and they, um, they brought in about, about 19 girls for, during that first year and a half. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I was brought to my refuge house after I got my master's in social work at UT Arlington. And I actually went over with another organization, a partner organization. But my role with that organization was to teach and train the staff at my refuge house um, because my background had been in group homework. Uh, group home work. Um, and so I went out there and I, um, I felt God call me to work with victims of trafficking since I was a teenager, but I didn't feel ready. <laughs> you know, I think we all sort of, I don't know, maybe not we all, maybe just me. Um, I, you know, you put yourself on the path and you go, okay, God, okay, God, yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there eventually, but I'm not there yet, God. I'm not there yet. And God says, well, here's a door. Are you going to go through it or not? <laughs> and then just leaves it open for you. And um, that was what happened, I think, in my situation. I went to the Philippines and I was there. I was training the staff and working with 
working with the staff and writing policies and procedures. And the director of my refuge house at the time, uh, his kids weren't doing very well in the school system out there. So he, ended, he went, came back to the States, and he's, he's still on our board in California. But um, there was an open position for the director there. And uh, I was like, Lord, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> That's such a big responsibility. Um, but, you know, it, it was there, and it was in front of me. And I knew God had called me to it, and I knew that he'd give me the strength. And so I... I said, okay, and um, we ended up, uh, right when I came on, and it was in, um, so I, I moved to the Philippines, oh, sorry, I moved to the Philippines in July of 2010, and I started with my refuge house in uh, March of 2011, nope, oh, sorry, got it all messed up, I moved to the Philippines in July of 2009, I started with my refuge house in March of 2010. And then uh, when I came on, we had just received a huge um, donation from one of our partner churches to buy land. Um, but we didn't have the money to build. <laughs> so we, um, we, we bought the property and we got a construction crew together. And I, they put me in charge of construction. I have no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never constructed anything in my life. Um, but they put me in charge, and I got a crew together, and I got these people together. And our, our rental facility just didn't have the capacity that we needed to really be able to care well for the girls. We just we couldn't take very many in. We just didn't, it just wasn't a very good space. The landlord wasn't very helpful. Um, so we... So we ended up actually, um, our, our lease was ending and the landlord wasn't able to renew it, didn't want to renew it. So we, had, we only had three girls in our home at the time and we, they were able to go home to their families and one went to a foster family. And so we closed it down and without the money to build. And uh, I got a construction crew together, I got all these people in line. We had a, an architectural team that came out and designed our plans pro bono and just this beautiful, as you can see, this beautiful house and beautiful facility. And... Um, we started building. <laughs> and I remember praying, like, I, I, I had this really aggressive plan because I wanted to be back open. I wanted to be able to take in girls. So I had this aggressive plan of about three months to build this house. And so I, <laughs> they assured me they could do it. But it's also Filipino time, so there's, it's a little bit of, you know, give and take as far as, it's not American time. American time is very by the book, which reminds me, how much time do I actually have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I got this team together. We were building. Um, we were in the first month, and we were coming to the end of the month, and uh, we didn't have enough money to finish the project. And so I was rehearsing my speech to tell the construction crew as well as all of our partner organizations that we just weren't going to be able to build to finish. Um, and then we had a, uh, a team come out, and this team uh, gave us... Um, by the time they left, I was literally going to tell the construction crew to go home the next week. And they gave us over two-thirds of the money, of the entire money to build the project. So they, it was like 60,000, or 60,000, yeah, something like that, U.S. dollars. So it was incredible. I mean, just like, I was just like blown away by God's faithfulness for that. Um, but since that time, since we opened, we opened back up in May of 2011, and since then, um, we've been able to take in 19 girls. And um, in 
just over a year. And our home, since we reopened, has never been less than 80% full. And there have been times when it's been over full. Our capacity is 12. We had 15 at one point, and plus the little baby running around, you know, one of the children of our, of our mothers. Um, so it's just, there's such a huge need and such a huge demand. And, and yeah, it's just, a, it's just a testimony to God's faithfulness, I think, that he... Um, gives us what we need to push through when we're seeking after the things that he wants to provide in the first place. Um, but he needs us to know that he's the one providing them, doesn't he? He needs us to know that we're depending on him and not on ourselves. And he needs us to know that it's completely his work and not anything of our own. Um, so we built this beautiful house. Um, and then we, um, we designed the program to be able to really equip the girls with everything we could possibly equip them with so that by the time they're ready to leave our facility, they'll have the strength and capacity to actually move on from everything they've been through. So we developed a, a homeschool program. Um, excuse me. The, um, one of the main vulnerabilities of the girls in our home is that they don't have education. They don't have formal education. In the Philippines, you can't work at McDonald's without a college degree. So um, not having a formal education is um, basically crippling in every way. So we, that was one of the first things we did. We said, how can we help these girls catch up with their education? The story that I told you about Becky, she'd never been to a school before. Um, and that was it's a huge need. It's a huge, vital need. So that was the first thing we did. And then, of course, obviously, all of our... All of our teaching, all of our devotions, every day is, is really wrapped around like who God says we are and how God can heal us and how, how, uh, how we can counsel with the perspective that God considers these girls worth so much, even after all that they've been through. Um, we also take care of all of their medical needs, and we also do medical education. So the girls have never, um, many of them have never been to a doctor. And because of the work that they've been trapped in, a lot of, they have a lot of medical needs. That's actually one of the biggest sort of areas for our budget that we didn't really plan for. So we're like, oh yeah, we have to do that. We, we can't, we have to do that. <laughs> uh, that. It was surprising to me. I wasn't quite expecting that part, but so we do that. We provide for the medical needs. We provide access to legal assistance. Um, the girls all go through um, international justice mission for their trafficking cases. And then, like, in the situation of the girl that I told you about, Becky, they also often have, have cases against their own fathers or their uncles or their other relatives who have abused them in the past. And so we help them file those cases through other um, legal organizations in town. Um, we teach them livelihood skills. We have chickens that lay eggs every day, and the girls cook, like, make, uh, or not make, grow vegetables, and we eat those every day. And they get so proud when they see that they're eating the vegetables that they grew themselves. Um, then we also do a lot of soft skills training, job readiness skills training, and then for our, our, our girls who are also mothers, we do parenting skills and parenting education. Like I said, I can't show you a picture of our girls, so this is a picture of our staff. <laughs> um, that's, this was actually when I left a couple of months ago, so that's why it's my... Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but one of the girls made me like a halo of flowers. <laughs> it's on my head. Um, she picked them from the garden, um, and those are, those are our staff. Yeah, <laughs> they're pretty great. Um, our staff are, are one of the things that, well, let me go back. I 
firmly believe that without relationships, we can't heal properly. We, we just can't heal. We have to be able to learn and, and know what it means to, to have someone love us tangibly. And so um, our staff are, are how we accomplish that. Um, these, these staff, they're just, they're just incredible. They love those girls so much, and they just breathe into their lives, and they're just able to really, um, yeah, just to really speak to them and to speak to their hearts and to, to work with them day in and day out, even, even through all of, all of the really hard things. And, and uh, the girls, the, the, the survivors are many times coming from the streets, and they're coming from really hard situations. So they're fighters, and they're, um, they can be really challenging in the beginning, but they push through. They push through, and they meet those needs, and they show them that, that you know, there are people that they can trust, and there are people that um, love them enough to work, work through it with them. And so, um, yeah, I thank God for them every day. Uh, we couldn't do the work without them. And then we also do work in the community, like working with the families of the girls. When, they're, when they weren't um, selling the girls into trafficking, then we, of course, try to, try to reconnect them again and, and put them back. So we do family counseling and connecting them with local churches and local communities um, so they have support when they leave our home as well. Um, and then teaching and training in the, in the communities also. So this is Becky again. I you can't see her face too well, but um, I want to tell you a little bit about the end of her story. Um, not the end yet. She's only 13 still. She's been with us for about 10 months. And um, the thing that I am the most encouraged by, or one of, one of the things I'm most encouraged by, is when Becky first came to our house, she couldn't study um, because it brought back so many bad memories for her of what her father did. Um, that she would literally, she would, she would sit at a table and she would, she would try to, to study, but she, she would get so agitated and so frustrated and just immediately just all of those feelings of, of everything that her dad had done to her would just come back immediately. And so, um, but she's brilliant. She's just so smart. And so our staff were able to just work with her day in and day out and, you know, slowly coax her through it and slowly work her through it until she came to a place where she could, she could do, she could sit there and study without having all those negative thoughts and feelings and emotions run through her. And, um, two weeks ago, she was, uh, studying multiplication for the first time. And she, by herself, she studied the multiplication tables, and she studied them really hard for a week, and she memorized the entire thing in a week all on her own without any help from any of the staff or any assistance, and they were just, I mean, everyone was like just running around so happy and, you know, proud of her and um, gloating inside, you know, for that accomplishment, but she's, I mean, she's just doing so well. From the first week when she arrived, she was just like, I love it here. I, I feel so safe. I feel, you know, taken care of. I have meals I can eat every day, three meals a day. And I'm, um, yeah, I feel safe. I think that that's the biggest thing. We always ask the girls, you know, or one time we did an activity with the girls and we asked them, what do you think of when you think of uh, safety? And we had them draw a picture and over half of them drew a picture of our house. And um, so that it's just, it's, yeah, it's just incredible, like, the way that they're able to just integrate in and, and really change um, their perception of, of life and themselves. And uh, we, we do um, some things with them called, uh, like, narrative, where they just are able to re- recapture and rewrite their story and who they are and where they came from. And one of the girls, um, you know, she, she wrote out her story, and, 
she wrote in there that the she just she would never have imagined that from how she was so hopeless before that now she could have so much hope um, and and just in her own words and had this uh, this beautiful picture to go with it and um, it's just I I feel so privileged to be able to like be a part of their stories and be a part of their life and um, yeah thank you for letting me let me share it with you guys today um, People always ask me, okay, what, what can I do? What, you know, how can I help? What, how can I, what, what, what can I do to be a part of it? And um, there are a couple of things, obviously. Um, one of them is to go. <laughs> like, there's so much work to do. <laughs> um, anyone can be a part of that work. Anyone can do it. Um, and, and I always encourage people, because I get a lot of people who say, how can I do it? How can I help? What can I do? And I think that when you work in the developing world, there are, there is not the education level or the skill level there to effectively understand like situations like trauma and working with legal systems and working uh, with public policy and those things that are making the, the trafficking situation re-perpetuates itself over and over and over again. So I also people get the education that you need here in the US if that's really something that you want to do and learn from the people here who are already doing those jobs who are working in in group homes or who are working in foster care or who are um, working with trauma survivors who are, you know, get a law degree if that's the direction you want to go or get in an MPA, a master's in public um, systems accounting. Oh, I forgot. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> you know, do, do get the skills that you need to really be able to influence and then um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if, um, if the people themselves, if, if the people, the nationals in their own place don't take ownership of it, then it's, then there's no, I mean, there's nothing we can do. So my, uh, my stance has always been, if you want to go, learn something you can teach to the, to the nationals that are there, um, because they're the ones that have to, have to solve, um, solve the issues. But you know what? It exists in the U.S. too. It exists. A lot in the US there was a case in I think in Oklahoma uh, just last month of like 4,000 people being rescued out of a labor trafficking situation um, just just up in Oklahoma <laughs> it's just a few hundred miles away um, and it yeah it exists here too um, the other the other thing you can do obviously is to um, tell people to make people aware and understand this important issue that's happening, this issue of trafficking. Um, host a class or a study session. There's so many materials. If you want some materials, let me know and I can point you to them. There's so many good materials. Um, you can read the book that started our organization called Terrify No More and talk about it as a group. It's, it's incredible. It'll, it'll, it'll change your life. Um, and then obviously to give. We always, always, always need financial support. And if if all you could do is give, then that's amazing because we'll do the hard work. <laughs> We're happy to do it. We want to do it. We're there to do it. Um, and so I, I wrote out here also um, a couple of numbers just for your benefit. $10 a month helps us buy, you know, cooking gas for the girls in our home. Um, $35 a month pays for our private vehicle. We had a number of situations where uh, we... We didn't have a vehicle yet when our house first opened and one of the girls was going to her legal case and she got on the same bus as her perpetrator <laughs> and uh, another girl um, passed out 
and had fainted and needed to go to the hospital, and there was no ambulance. So they ended up taking her to the hospital on a motorbike, completely passed out, and were, like, holding her in their arms on a motorbike going down a mountain. So anyway, needless to say, a vehicle was a huge need. And uh, so $35 a month helps pay for that, the gas and, and our driver, and um, makes, a, makes our girls more secure, obviously, and, and prepares us for those sorts of emergencies that are inevitable. Um, $50 a month pays for the homeschool program. Um, for each girl and other educational programs, and then $600 a month pays for our, our staff that we obviously put so much work into because they are, they're the lifebone of, of what we do. Um, so that's all. <laughs> um, and yeah, just, I just want to thank you guys so much. I, I, um, I heard a, someone told me, when, again, when I was in high school in that small church that reminds me so much of the sun, and I had this burning desire to work with with women and children who'd been affected by trafficking and um someone said to me um if that's from god hide it in your heart and do what you need to do to get there but know that if it's really from god it'll still be there by the time you're done getting education and getting everything else that you need to equip you for that fight and i did that and years later i'm standing here in front of you having having been there and having done that work and and i just I'm just so encouraged by how God speaks uniquely to each one of us and how God, um, he carries us for a specific purpose. And people always ask me, like, you know, how do you know that this is God's will? Or how do you know that this is exactly what he's leading you to? And, and my answer for that is um, that we know God's will in our, in our small daily decisions. I don't think that God's will is a giant career path that we have to go searching for. I think God's will is decisions that we make on a daily and an hourly basis. And if we make those decisions in line with what God's spirit and what the word says, then when those big decisions come, there'll be no choice but to make the right one because there'll be no other answer. And, um, and this, is, this is where those small decisions led me. And I know that if you guys were to come up here and tell me your testimonies, they'd be just as exciting in very different ways. And I just, I'm just so thankful that, um, that God just, he just carries us through, doesn't he? He just carries us through. So um, thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to talk to you today. And bless you. Thank you for tuning in today for Worship and the Word with Generations Church. You may hear our radio broadcast again at the same time and station next week. If you do not have a church congregation to call home and you live near the Granbury area, we would love to invite you to come check us out some Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Our meeting facilities are located at 5718 East Highway 377 on the Fort Worth side of Granbury. And our website is at generationschurch.org. Oh, yeah.